It is never my custom to use words lightly. If 27 years in prison have done anything to us, it was to use the silence of solitude to make us understand how precious words are and how real speech is in its impact on the way people live and die. Those words from Nelson Mandela, president of South Africa. And they are words which echo Proverbs 18.21, a proverb that we discussed last week as we began this series on words. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Let's say that together as a church family on three. One, two, three. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. So God has purposed our words to create life in the lives of others. As God spoke in Genesis chapter 1 to create the heavens and the earth, God wants our words to create life in the lives of others. And, and furthermore, God has purposed our words not just to create life, but in the creation of life to create community, relentless unity. Adam's first words to Eve were poetic lyrics, a song of unity and community and intimacy, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones. So God does not want our words to divide. God wants our words to unite. And then we learned last week that after God purposed words to create life, after God purposed words to create community, God has purposed us as his image bearers to represent his very own self. And so our talk must exist so that we will talk for God. Words belong to the Lord. And that's what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 and 2, this temple garden of life and vitality and encouragement and absolute joy. And the man and the woman were naked and unashamed. The man and the woman were vulnerable and transparent with their words. And as a result, there was this, this beautiful, pure, holy intimacy that took place. And, and God joined them in this. God met them in the cool of the evening there in the garden and encouraged and communicated and built community. And, and Eden was this pristine Garden temple which verbally proclaimed the joy of the Lord. And that's why we talked last week that our talk, your talk, my talk, must exist so that we will talk for God. Well, what went wrong? What happened? How did this perfect world of talk go awry? Well, that's what I want us to discuss this morning. And I want us to consider two passages of Scripture. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. You'll find that on page 2 of your church Bibles. And so while, you, while you're just turning open to page 2, take your... Uh, contact card that you were given, your bulletin card, and if you'll just go to James 3, Genesis 3, James 3, and you'll find that on page 1012 of your church Bibles, 1012. We're going to look at page 2 
and page 1012. And Genesis 3 tells the story of what went wrong. And then James 3 tells the warning behind the story of what went wrong. Let's first begin with Genesis chapter 3. Out of this perfect world of talk in Genesis 1 and 2 enters an intruder beginning in 3.1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. So something is clearly out of place here in Genesis 3, 1. I mean, think about it. Serpents don't talk. Humans talk. And yet this serpent talks. And the conversation that ensued, that ensued seemed to occur without the man and the woman even asking the question, well, how is it that serpents can talk? They just have the conversation and and, and the man and the woman's commissioning from God to rule creation was kind of almost overlooked in that they're speaking to a subordinate creature who's treating them like an equal. Something's twisted. Something's not right. What's that about? Here's what that's about. The fall of humanity, the fall of the Garden of Eden began with words. Words. The serpent's words were meant to conceal his crafty scheme of undermining God's truthful word. And what follows in Genesis chapter Three was a sequence of firsts. So for the first time, God's leadership was questioned. You see that? I mean, the very first sentence that slithered out of the serpent's lips was a question. Did God actually say? On the surface, it's an innocent question. A simple request for clarification. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? You see what Satan's doing? Any tree in the garden? Just twisting. Just, you know. That serpent knew the answer to that question. But the, the serpent didn't ask for the sake of clarification, but rather for the sake of deception. Until then, there'd been no questioning God's leadership, no doubting God's authority, no suspecting God's integrity. Adam and Eve trusted the Lord. They put their lives in His care. It was good, and God saw that it was good. And they were living the good life. But now this subversive question is on the table. Did God really say? Did God really say? For the first time. God's leadership is challenged. And then, for the very first time, an alternative interpretation is offered. Do you get that? An alternative interpretation is offered. One that's different from God's. One one that is from below, not from above. And it was so subtle. The, the The serpent's question was intended to 
lead her to her own interpretation as if to say you know you have the right to your own interpretation of a world you didn't create and the woman's alternative interpretation minimized God's provision and added to God's prohibition and weakened God's penalty you see that the alternative interpretation minimized God's provision so God had said in Genesis 2.16, you may eat freely, but that gets minimized in chapter 3, verse 2, to you may eat. You see that? And then the alternative interpretation added to the prohibition. In 2.16, God said nothing about touching the forbidden tree. God didn't say that. But this becomes... In 3.3, neither shall you touch it. You see? And then this alternative interpretation weakened the penalty. See? The certainty in 2.16 of you shall surely die becomes uh, a slap on the wrist in 3.3. Lest you die. How subtle. The serpent spoke in a way that led her to make up her own interpretation. And this is a very important point, church family. Our word problems are often interpretation problems, aren't they? We don't, we don't, you don't respond to mere words. What you respond to is your interpretation of those words. And much of the trouble with our talk would go away if we simply just pushed the pause button and asked, you know, how it is the Lord wants us to interpret the words we hear. So for the first time, God's leadership is challenged. For the first time, an alternative interpretation is offered. And then, after challenging God and suggesting a different point of view, for the very first time, a lie is told. Very first time. You will not die. This had never happened before. Until then, every conversation was truthful, every conversation was trustworthy, and every conversation was honorable. Not, not anymore. You're blind. And God doesn't want you to see. He's holding back from you. That's why, verse 4, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. You won't die that is a lie. And that's why Jesus called Satan the father of lies. In John 8, 44, Satan was a murderer from the beginning. And he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. Some of your translations say, when he lies, he speaks his own native language satan's first language is lying for he is a liar and the father of lies and you know what happened don't you scripture says she saw she took she ate she gave verse six to the man who was with her standing there right beside and he ate and their eyes were open, but not the way they thought. And for the first time, they felt fear and they felt shame. 
Verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And after God was doubted and an alternative interpretation is offered, for the first time, humans spoke against one another, right? That evening, the Lord came and Verse 8 says that the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. God came to them. God was searching for them. Where are you? Well, I, I, I was afraid. I was naked. I hid. How'd you know you were naked? Who told you you were naked? Did you do what I told you not to do? And they spoke against each other, right? Think about it. Adam does not protect her. Adam does not stand with her. Adam doesn't admit culpability. Adam doesn't say, Lord, please, this is my fault. Punish me. I was standing right next to her during this talk, and I should have spoken, but I was silent. And I did not offer guardianship. I did not lead like I should have. I did not have us exercise dominion over the serpent like we should have. I will take responsibility. Adam doesn't do that. He does not intercede for her. He does not advocate for her. He threw her under the bus. Verse 12. The woman you gave me. There's a leader. (laughs) He blames her. She got me into this mess, and and then he blames God. And you as well, because you made her. His his accusation against her becomes an accusation against God. And we do that, don't we? Don't we do that? We say to our spouse, "You, you make me so mad. Really? Really? Well, I was more relaxed before I had children. Oh, is that right? My boss doesn't get it. My boss doesn't get it. My parents don't get it. The minister at my church does not get it. All the other ministers at all the other churches that I've been to, they don't get it. Nobody gets it. Of course they don't. Of course they don't. We're not just pointing the finger at others. We're pointing the finger at God. The woman you gave me, why did you let this happen? And the creator God, who is to be worshipped and loved, has become a scapegoat for our disobedience. And even when we apologize, even when we apologize, our apologies suffer from a sincerity deficit disorder. Right? What do you mean? Here's what I mean. Well, I'm sorry if you took offense at what I said. Now, doesn't that make you feel better? Or, 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 I'm sorry if I said something that offended you. Or, I'm sorry if mistakes were made. It's, 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 a, condes- it's a condescending way of saying, you know, it's just too bad that you're so unreasonably hypersensitive. That's an apology? (laughs) Um, Whenever the words if or but follow the phrases I'm sorry, 
You're not. Okay? You're not. You know, uh, uh, whenever the words if or but follow the phrase, I'm sorry, the apology sort of just kind of self-destructs. I'm sorry if. It's not an apology. I'm sorry, but. Not an apology. I'm sorry that you. Not an apology. I'm sorry that I. That's a good start. Okay? It's a good start. Genesis 1 and 2's world of blessedness became a Genesis 3 world of cursedness. And words brought this on. You see? This, this garden temple of truth became a, a carnival house of mirrors by means of twisted and distorted words. And we now live in a post-Genesis 3 world. A world where twisted words manipulate, defensive words incriminate, toxic words contaminate, and godless words infiltrate the very image bearers of God. No wonder James chapter 3 says that our world, our words, our words are a world of unrighteousness. So our, our words are this, are this you know, fantasy realm of unrighteousness with, with real effects. Cue James 3. Page 1012 in your church Bibles. James, who's the brother of Jesus, a leader in the church in Jerusalem, immersed in in Hebrew Scripture and Genesis, and Genesis 1 and 2 and 3 speaks about the tongue. And here he gives this exposition of the tongue. And and here's what he says. Uh, It's it's a one-word big idea. Beware. 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 Your words are flammable. They're combustible. And, And he begins his conversation, his lesson in James 3, 1 through 12 by telling us that you know if you can master your mouth you will be as mature as you'll ever be in this life um every now and then in the fireside room i have conversations with people who want to know well what what does a mature believer look like i mean if you could just summarize it here it is this is it this is it james 3 2 For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Simplest description of a fully mature man or woman in Christ is someone who's trained their tongue, mastered their mouth, You can master this two-ounce organ in your body 
you will be wise beyond your years. And you know why, don't you? James tells us why. Because while the tongue is so small, it, it bears a disproportionate influence over our lives. And so James illustrates this in verses 3 and 4 and 5 with a bridle, a rudder, and a match. If we put bits into the mouths of horses, just a one-pound bit can direct a thousand-pound horse. So that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And look at ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. And so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. And then James says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Little bridle, big horse. Little rudder, big ship. Little fire, big forest fire. So a uh, year before last, in the fall of 2015, it was around November, and it was after harvest. Um, I was studying, I was working on my message in my office, and outside my office, uh, there was just a little more conversational noise than usual, and it was, it was, and uh, it, it was, it became distracting to me, and generally, I, when I get focused, I can kind of get focused and tune that out, but I didn't, I was, I, I was distracted, and then I felt annoyed, am I the only one who has work to do around here, what's going on, right, and so I calmly opened the door, having thought that, um, and I, you know, opened the door. Hi, what's going on? And I was told, Randy, turn around. And I turned around, and I looked out my east window. And I kid you not, there was this wall of flames going on in the field there to the east of us. And, uh, I mean, it was, I'd not seen anything like this before. And I confess, my first thought was, my commentaries, <laughs> throw your bodies in front of my commentaries, you know, I have a sermon to finish, um, so south of the property, that's a preacher thing, um, <laughs> south of the property somewhere, south of the property somewhere in Cherry Hills, someone had dumped a, from their grill a very small smoldering batch of charcoal briquettes. And it had crept to the end of their property, and when it hit the wind in the fields, it went wild. And the fire department, you know, was called. Windsor Road was shut down. Uh, smoke was everywhere. Uh, fire engines had come to the back of our property, and, and uh, they, they put out the fire, and then they had to till the field to make sure that it was smothered and out. I mean, it was a process. And James says, this is your tongue. Your tongue, your words can ignite a fire that you cannot put out. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Small Match forest fire. Match forest fire. All I said was match. And then she went ballistic. Forest fire. Uh, all I said was match. And then my dad forest fire match forest fire the tongue is a fire staining the whole body verse 6 the whole body so when when you were a child and you mouthed off to your parents 
Your whole person was affected, not just your mouth. When you mouth off at the boss, it's not just your mouth that gets fired. It's the whole person. It's not just your mouth that has to sleep on the couch. <laughs> it's this little part of you, but it affects the whole person, right? I mean, and then there's not another part of your body that can get you into trouble as quickly as your mouth. And you're not the only one who gets into trouble. Verse 6 says, it sets on fire the entire course of life. Meaning your mouth can burn down a marriage. And your mouth can burn down a relationship with mom and dad or sons and daughters or siblings. Your mouth can burn down your career. And these are fires that once they get ignited, you cannot extinguish them because they're out of there. They've gone wild. And I apologize doesn't make the third degree burn go away. I apologize doesn't make the scar tissue of your verbal scorching go invisible. It doesn't. And we're like Thor and his hammer with our words. We, we toss our words out like Thor does the hammer. Like we, Thor can toss that hammer like a wiffle ball. But then that hammer hits other people. Proverbs 12, 18 says, Rash language cuts and maims. See? So, you know, we... We verbally scorch someone, and it's like, what is that like? It's, like? it's like backing into someone and backing over someone and then you know, getting out and, 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 and expecting them to and it just pop right back up after you say, oh, I'm sorry. Well, they're hurt. They're wounded. They're damaged. They're injured. And verse 6 says that it's set on fire by hell. In other words, we were born with the pilot light on. And when it comes to marriage or family and parenting, when you criticize something that your family member cannot change about themselves, their body type, their skin type, your thoughtless words are scorching their soul. And being honest is not about verbally vomiting whatever's on your mind. Whenever I tell Sarah what is exactly on my mind, I typically wound her. That's not honesty. That's folly. And that's why even the most foolish among us, you know, would just do well to say nothing. Just say nothing. Proverbs 17, 28. Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise. When he closes his lips, he's deemed intelligent. I mean, sin has entered the world through language. And the chart effects are everywhere. And we're born with the pilot light on. And so you don't have to teach it, you don't have to teach a three-year-old to say, no, 
No. Our little 20-month-old granddaughter, she doesn't say no. She says, done. Done. Done, 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 done. That's her no. <laughs> you don't have to teach a three-year-old to say no. And you don't have to teach a 14-year-old girl to say, ah. Right? It's in there. I mean, we come into the world and, you know, the, the pilot light's on. And James says, I want you to understand how, how wild the tongue is. And then he speaks about beasts and animals that have been tamed. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird and of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. What's his point? His point is this. Humans do not fear the animal kingdom. There's no animal that threatens the existence of human life. But what we've managed to do with animals has yet to be accomplished with the tongue. No human can tame the tongue. Verse 8, it is a restless evil, restless, circle restless. That is an adjective that describes a caged animal pacing back and forth, ready to strike. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. And James says, he, he, he offers this what should be unthinkable situation in verse 9. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God, our Lord and Father. So we, we, you know, we, we come to God and praise Him in worship and then curse His image bearers. This, you've never met a mere mortal. You're made in the image of God. Jim Simbala is a pastor at a church in New York City, and um, he wrote these words. He said, about 20 years ago, I said something impromptu to the new members standing in a row across the front of the church. As we received them, the Holy Spirit prompted me to add, and now I charge you that if you ever hear another member speak an unkind word of criticism or slander against anyone, myself, an usher, a choir member, or anyone else, I charge you that you stop that person in mid-sentence and say to them, excuse me, who hurt you? Who ignored you? Who slighted you? Was it pastor? Well, let's go to his office right now and he'll apologize to you and we'll pray together so God can restore peace to this body. But we will not let you talk critically about people who aren't present to defend themselves. He said, I'm serious about this. And then he said to, to the new members being introduced, he said, I, I want to help you resolve this kind of thing immediately. And then he said this, and know this, if you are ever the one doing the loose talking, we'll confront you. He said to this day, every time we receive new members, I say pretty much the same thing. And here's why. What destroys churches are not crack cocaine, or government oppression, or even the lack of money. That's not what destroys churches. Gossip and slander, that's what destroys churches. Gossip and slander is what grieves the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit is grieved, we, we won't be blessed. 
And so James says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And, and it's not that he's just saying, you know, this is morally wrong. He's saying, this shouldn't be possible. It should not be a reality. This should not exist. And then he asks a series of questions. You know, can a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? And you know the answer to that question. No. And can a fig tree bear olives? You know the answer to that question. No. Can a grapevine produce figs? You know the answer to that question. What is it? No. No. Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Beware, James says. Your words are flammable. And then he just kind of leaves us there, right? I think because he just really wants us to be convicted about this. This is, this is not a joke. Especially for liberty-loving Americans who like to talk. So now what? Well, it kind of just takes us to this very next verse, and it, it, it's, it's in the form of a question. Who is wise and understanding among you? And it's a question with a, with a big idea behind it because the big idea is this. We need wisdom from above to control the fire of the tongue. That's what we need. We need wisdom from above. Who is wise? Who is under, and James has already told us in James chapter 1 that if we ever lack wisdom, we should ask God and he gives generously to all without finding fault and it will be given. If you lack wisdom, ask and it'll be given. Ask, James says. Ask. And, and, and how does a mouth of wisdom sound? Well, here are, here are uh, three statements that we should hear from the mouth of wisdom statement number one a statement of confession we we need to confess our inability to tame the tongue to uh, rephrase step one of celebrate recovery realize i'm not god admit that i am powerless to control my tongue and that my mouth is unmanageable statement of confession and then a statement of amends that's number two we need to make amends for the people that we've hurt with our tongue we need to take responsibility for the fires that we've started and if you just glance over the page uh, to page 1013 in james chapter 5 verse 16 james says confess your sins to one another what sins? All of your sins. Your mouth sins. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. We need to take ownership for the fires that we've started. And after you take ownership, stop talking. Okay? 
Of course there are two sides. Just own yours. Make a confession. Make amends. And then, and then make this prayer every day from this day on. Every day. If, if you can just learn one, one verse. Um, Lord, today I surrender my mouth. Today I surrender my mouth. You know, your mouth is a loaded weapon. And so is mine. And if this were some other area in life, you'd have to take a class and you'd have to get a license to carry a mouth. But you were born with a mouth. Right? You were born, and it's loaded. And the words just start coming. And we have the potential to scorch others. So pray that the wisdom of God would enter your heart before any words exit your mouth. And so here are uh, two verses I would have you learn. You don't learn anything else. Proverbs 10, 19. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. So, so do you want to sin less? According to this proverb, talk less. That's it. That's it. When words are many, transgression is not lacking, but whoever restrains his lips is prudent. God, God, I'm surrendering my mouth to you. I have a match at the edge of the matchbox. And what I'm about to light is going to go wild and it's going to become bigger. And, it's, and it may shut down the argument, but my relationship is going to get charred. I don't want that. God, give me wisdom. And so this verse in Psalm 19, 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Can we say that together as a church family here on three? One, two, three. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Man, there it is. We need wisdom from above to control the fire of the tongue. Would you be willing to own the damage that you've done? Would you be willing to do what you can to make amends to repair that damage? And would you be willing to begin your day starting today by surrendering your mouth to wisdom from above? Heavenly Father, thank you so much for creating us in your image. And thank you that the very possibility and reality of speech is a reflection of us being made in your likeness remind us remind us that our brothers and sisters here in this church family in our family at the office you know wh whether they have professed faith and whether people have been made in your image we have never met mere mortals God, give us wisdom. And may the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart be acceptable and pleasing to you. You, our rock, 
you who have redeemed us by the word made flesh. Thank you in Jesus' name and the church said, amen.